Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page. Glad you guys are here. It's always funny, the, the two worst attended services uh, in any church anywhere in, in America is after Easter and after Christmas. Always the two worst attended. And I knew that last night, especially, it would be sparse watching that football game uh, because I knew a lot of people were up. And they should be here because they need to repent at what they were yelling at the refs at the TV screen. Uh, but I, I knew that they wouldn't be here. Um, this week we'll be going through Luke. If you want to open your Bibles, we'll be at Luke 2, 22 through 52. That's where we're going, uh, or your Bible app or whatever. That's where we're headed today. Before we get there, one other thing. Um, next weekend, I won't be preaching. Dad won't be preaching. Next weekend, Eddie will be preaching. So Eddie will be preaching the first time. So want to be here for that. Um, and so before I tee this up, here's what we need to do. Um, first of all, have you ever had a conversation with someone where you just could not make yourself understood? Okay, yeah, everybody's been married. It's going, yeah. Okay. Um, and no matter what you said, that it just was like going like this. Okay, now, Sometimes there are different reasons for that. I've had a lot of those conversations, not just with my wife. I've had conversations because as a lawyer, um, everybody thinks they know the law because they've seen like episodes of like Law and Order. And, and so, you know, they sit there and try to tell me what the law is when I have to tell them that's not what the law is. And they're like, no, 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 because Angie Harmon did this. And I'm like, hey, hey, guys, the people who wrote Law and Order, they don't have law degrees either. I, I hate to tell you, you're not learning anything about the law from Law and Order. Um, it doesn't work that way. But and you just, it, it just goes nowhere. They're just absolutely convinced they know, and it goes nowhere. Okay, sometimes that's the case. Other times it's the case that the reason you're not being understood is not because of their preconceived notions or anything. It's the spiritual reason. And we're going to see that this morning. Second thing, before we jump into the text and we start working through Luke, which, by the way, if you haven't been here in a few weeks or whatever, we're going to be in Luke for a long time, so settle in. Um, but here's what's going on. Here's something you need to remember. Here's what the original readers of Luke would have understood and we tend to miss. Back in, if you go and read the prophet Ezekiel, and I know that's not easy reading and it's not something that people do often, but if you go back and you read the prophet Ezekiel, and you look at Ezekiel 10, what's happening there is the Spirit of God leaves the nation of Israel. It leaves the temple. And so this occurs about 593 B.C., so a long, long time ago, almost 2,600 years ago this happens. Now, when that happens, the Jews from that time on, we're praying that God's Spirit would return. That it would return to the temple. So by the time Jesus is born, and it, for those of you who were here on, on, for the Christmas Eve service, when we went through that beginning of, of Luke 2, you'll remember that in all likelihood, Jesus is born around 7 or 8 B.C. 
Uh, that means the people who put the calendar got it wrong. But it's about 7 or 8 B.C. that he's born. We know that because in the Gospel of Matthew, by the time the Magi show up, he's an infant. You know, he's walking around. And, so, and Herod dies around 3 B.C. So that's how we can, we can date that. And so by the time Jesus is born, the Jews have been waiting nearly 600 years for the presence of God to return to Israel. And what we're going to see this morning is when the presence of God returns to the temple itself, all but two Jews completely miss it. And then when Jesus returns to the temple again as a little boy, they still miss it. And the question is why. So let's jump in. Luke 2.22. Here we go. So when the time for the purification rites required by the law of Moses, Joseph and Mary um, took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The purification rites, you remember when we went through Leviticus, that if you had a baby, you had to wait so long before it'd be purified, before you could kind of go out in public. And so it's been about a week. And so now Joseph and Mary are taking Jesus to the temple to offer sacrifices and to offer him service to the Lord. As is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two young pigeons. Now, that sacrifice, if you go back and you look at the Old Testament, that sacrifice is the sacrifice of the dirt poor. That is the bare minimum sacrifice you could offer, and you could only offer because you were impoverished. That's why I I said on Christmas Eve when we were going through it that I know that people don't like it when I say that their nativity scene is wrong, that the movies get it wrong, all that kind of stuff, but they, they get it wrong. Most of what we have in nativity scenes and in movies about Jesus' birth and all that kind of stuff, most of that stuff comes from a 4th century novel about Jesus written by a guy who'd never been to Israel, and it shows. Right? So Mary was not on a donkey. She was not on a camel. They couldn't have afforded that. She would have been walking nine months pregnant, roughly 90 to 100 miles. And so... They are, these are just very poor people. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon who was righteous and devout. That means he's got right standing before God, and he's very devout in the Jewish faith. But this is not, and Luke makes this clear, Simeon is going to recognize who the baby Jesus is, but not because he's righteous and devout. That is not why he recognizes Luke's going to tell you. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. That means the return, the, 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 uh, the Spirit coming back to Israel. That's what he's been waiting for and praying for. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, i got to clear something up because after I preached this last night, some people got confused. When the Holy Spirit is on someone in the Bible, that does not mean all of a sudden they start dancing or speaking in tongues or all that kind of stuff. The Holy Spirit, that does happen in Scripture, but it's rare. Typically what happens when the Holy Spirit comes on someone, they learn something that they could only learn directly from God. And that's what's happening with Simeon. It had been revealed to him, by what? This is going to be a reoccurring theme, folks. 
by the Holy Spirit, that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, there it is again. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. And when the parents brought in the child, Jesus, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. Now, before we get to what he says. Okay, perhaps only mothers can understand this. Mothers, let's say you have a seven-day-old baby. And a strange old man walks up to you and says, give me your baby. Now, Mary is probably 13 or 14 years old on top of that. Do you know what Mary's thinking right now? Joseph, don't you let that old man drop my baby. Right? So Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. In other words, I can die now. You can take me now. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. This is the first time Luke makes mention of this, that Jesus is not just for the Jewish people, but to bring salvation to all people. And this is, he knows this, Simeon knows this. Why? The Holy Spirit. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them. Now, this is, this is important. To offer a blessing, the Greek word is makarios, you would put your hands on them and then you would pray to God that they would be in God's favor. That's what a blessing is. A blessing is not what the you know, preachers on TV and stuff, may you get stuff and money and looks and all kind of stuff. That is unbiblical. A biblical blessing was, may you have favor in God's eyes. May God use you. That's a biblical blessing. Now, notice what he says. Now, typically, if you were a parent of a young child, the blessing would go on the child. You do this, right? I don't know how many of you, you know, have been there. You, you, you go to see a baby that has been born. Grandparents, you're especially guilty of this. You'll go to see your grandbaby. The mother might as well not even be there. You're all gathered around the baby. The mother's over there covered in sweat and in pain and ready to pass out. And you're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, where's the baby? And that's in, in Judaism the same way. You look for the baby and you look at the baby and then you bless the baby. And yet Simeon blesses the parents especially Mary. He speaks directly to Mary. And what he's saying is going to be important because what he says to Mary is prompted by Holy Spirit. And he's going to say something to Mary when he blesses her that she's not going to want to hear. He says this child is destined to cause the falling. In Greek, you could say going to cut people down. And the rising of many in Israel unto be a sign that will be spoken against. So that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed in Greek, pub, put on public display. And it says here, a sword will pierce your own soul too. He's talking to Mary. The Greek word there is not the thin little sword that you see in like three musketeer movies. The Greek word there is broad sword. It's going to cut 
deep. What is he talking about? Joseph will die within the next few years. Joseph will live to see his child be about 12 years old or so, and then he's out of the picture. He's going to die young. He's not going to see Jesus' ministry, but Mary will. Mary is one of the few people at the foot of the cross watching her little boy slaughtered. And this is why Simeon says, this will pierce your soul. There was also a prophet, Anna. Now again, got to clear this up. A prophet in the Bible is not somebody who goes into some kind of trance and speaks about the future. A prophet, by definition in the Bible, is someone who speaks for God. God gives them something to say, and they say it. You go back and you look at Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you look at all the minor prophets and so forth, typically what they say are to Israel, hey, quit screwing up. You're supposed to be the people of God. That's typically what a prophet does. A prophet speaks for God. Anna is a prophet. The daughter of Penuel of the tribe of Asher, she was very old. She'd lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Remember, Jewish girls get married about 13. And then was a widow until she was 84. So she'd been a widow for 64 years. And look at what she's done. She never left the temple but worshiped night and day, fasting and praying. One of the things we have lost in the church, if you read the letters of Paul, there is actually an office in the early church for widows. That, what does Paul say? If a widow is older and she's not going to remarry, he says, take her, bless her, and have her pray and fast for the church. And Anna has been doing that for the people of God. Coming up to them at that very moment, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. And when Joseph and Mary had done everything required by the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew up and became strong, and he was filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was on him. Now, that's important to remember. What it basically is saying there in the Greek is, and I, I don't mean to keep harping on the Greek, but Luke is very, very high Greek. He, he writes very classically in Greek. It's, it's very difficult Greek, and so and the, the words are really kind of packed with meaning, and, and that's what Luke does. It's a, it's a gift he has, whereas John, the Gospel of John, poor John, he's just not, he's not real gifted at Greek. His Greek is kind of low-level Greek, but Luke is very well educated. And, and so what he's saying here is this. Jesus is not Superman. He grew up. He, he was a human being. And, and people get confused by this, but he's fully God, yes. But he's a full, fully human being, yes. Which one is it? Yes. How do you do that? I don't know. But God did it. But because he's fully human, you need to get out of your mind this idea that Jesus just walked around with some kind of weird light behind his head, like in the paintings, and that he never had bad breath, that he never had gas, that he never had to go to the bathroom. None of that is true. He had all of that. And so you need to make friends with that. And the reason why you need to make friends with that is this. Because you will not really get the cross and what happened on the cross unless you understand both the human and divine aspects of God. 
When Jesus goes to the cross on your behalf to pay the penalty for your sins, he felt real pain. He felt real agony. He had real flesh that was ripped apart. And you need to remember that when you go to God in prayer and remember what he has done for you, which, by the way, before you, I, I really do recommend this. Before you pray, preach the gospel to yourself first. Remember what God has done for you first. Otherwise, your prayers will be a lot just like a shopping list. And God, I want this. God, I want that. And God, I want this. And God, I want that. You put the cross in there at the front of your mind before you go to pray. And maybe it'll be a little less of that and more of thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, I have to clean up something here real quick because people read Luke and then they read Matthew and then they watch stupid things on YouTube or on TV and they get this confused. What's going on here? Because... Joseph and Mary, they go to Bethlehem for the census. They have the census. They wait seven days. They go to the temple. They offer the sacrifice for Jesus. And they offer Jesus to the Lord. While they're there, how many people recognize that Jesus is the Messiah? That Jesus is the Spirit of God who has returned to the temple that they prayed for for nearly 600 years? How many? Forty thousand plus people in Jerusalem to recognize who Jesus is. Why? Holy Spirit. But then they go back to Nazareth, and people. I, I've had people ask me this. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. What about the Magi? When do they show up? Why are they doing all this other kind of stuff? Didn't the Magi? Didn't they go to Bethlehem, or did they go to Nazareth? Where do they go? What's going on here? Here's what's going on here. And here's where you just have to know a little history, and you're either blessed or cursed with a nerdy pastor who loves to study this stuff. Galilee, Nazareth is in the Galilee. That's what they call that region. It was a hotbed of problems. One biblical scholar said the closest thing he can really compare Galilee to then is, for those of you who are old enough to remember, Berkeley in the 60s. It's that kind of hotbed. Galilee was a serious problem. They were always having to put down rebellions in Galilee, constantly. This is why when you read the Gospels and they say, we've met the Messiah. His name is Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And one of the disciples go, can anything good come out of there? That's what he means. He's not just saying that no hick town. He's saying that hick town that's got a lot of people armed and ready for D-Day kind of thing. That's what he's talking about. And so Joseph and Mary go back to Nazareth, but in all likelihood, they don't stay there for very long. Because, again, and I'm sure Mary had something to say about this. All right, now I'm speaking to the mothers. You have your baby. You go home. You have found that in your home, your neighborhood, something you've never noticed before as a single girl. Now, as a mother, you look around, and you're like, this place is just a crap hole. 
and everybody's got a really bad attitude, and they're armed. Something tells me Mary said, hey, Joseph, that Bethlehem place was a nice place, don't you think? Can you get work there? Oh, you can? Apply. So I think they returned to Bethlehem until they found out that Herod was after them, and then they go to Egypt, and then they return to Nazareth later on. Makes sense? When the kids are older. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. These, Joseph and Mary are observant, faithful Jews. You didn't have to go to the Passover if you were Jewish every year, but they did. And so, when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. Now, it's important that Luke points out that Jesus is 12 years old. Why? If you know anything about Judaism, Jewish males become men at what age? Anybody? Anybody? Man, oh man, oh man, I'm the only person that's lived outside of southern Ohio. Come on. Um, 13, thank you. 13 is when a Jewish male is declared a man. Never been to a bar mitzvah? That's what happens, right? And so they're saying he's 12, so he's saying what? He's not yet considered a man. He's not yet, he's still considered a student, a boy. And so he goes up with his parents, and here's what it says. Now, before you think Joseph and Mary are really bad parents, you got to understand what's going on here. When the Passover came, sometimes huge groups would go together to the temple. And they would go in huge groups to the temple together because, one, from Nazareth, if that's where they are, or even from Bethlehem, wherever they're at, it's a good uh, trip on foot. Six, seven miles from Bethlehem, 90 to 100 miles from Nazareth. And they, they had these things called bandits out there, and there is no real police force. So you, you kind of went in groups, kind of like they did wagon trains, the Old West, in order to protect each other. And, of course, what happens when you get groups of families together? You know what happens. You've ever been, ever been anybody been to like a barbecue or anything? What happens? Women are over here. Men are over here. Kids are over here, right? And that's how they would travel together. So after the festival's over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. They weren't bad parents, it's just that's how they traveled. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions, because that's what you did if you were a young boy. You would, you would ask the rabbis questions. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers, because, and that's an incredible phrase there, his answers. This means that the rabbis reversed the traditional role and began asking him questions, a 12-year-old boy. This did not happen. But they're amazed at his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously, that word can mean fearfully, searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house or about my father's business? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them. And this was obedient to them, but his mother treasured all these things in her heart. What she treasuring? It's pointing back to the fact that the Jewish teachers were like, this kid, wow, 
And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature, there it is again, and in favor with God and man. Now, why does Luke include that story? Does Luke just want to tell you a cute story about Jesus when he was 12 years old? I don't think so. Does he want to tell you this cute story about these two elderly people who, who come up and, 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 and want to hold Jesus and, and, and they bless them and all this kind of stuff? I don't think so. What's the point of the story? The point of these stories that Luke is doing is this. How many people, including the Jewish teachers, recognize who Jesus is? Do the Jewish teachers go, this young man, it's the Messiah, God's presence, after all this time, has returned to the temple, praise God. They go, no, he's pretty smart. That's it. They have been waiting and praying for almost 600 years for the presence of God to return to the temple. He re goes, he returns, he returns again, and nobody gets it. Nobody sees it. The Jewish teachers don't see it. Only an elderly man and an elderly woman, and they only see it for what reason? Holy Spirit. That's it. That's it. Sometimes, if you're having a conversation with people about Christ, about the gospel, and nothing is clicking. It's not that you're necessarily saying it badly. What the Bible is very clear about is this. The problem is the person you're talking to does not have the Holy Spirit. And if a person does not have the Holy Spirit, they do not get spiritual things at all. You can study all you want, worship all you want, attend church all you want. If you don't have the Holy Spirit, you will not get it. There's a guy who teaches down at the University of North Carolina. The guy went to Moody Bible Institute. He did a seminary degree. He did a Ph.D. in New Testament from Princeton University, and he's an atheist. He speaks Greek and Hebrew. He reads the Bible in the original languages better than you read English, and he's an atheist. Why? He does not have the Holy Spirit. He does not. And that's why. That's why. The Spirit of God is not just this charismatic force it's a force of knowledge as well. It's our only source of true knowledge. I'll prove it to you. I'll prove it to you. Let's run through some, some text talking about the Holy Spirit. Start, we're going to start here. John 14, 26. Gospel of John 14, 26. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. What is Jesus saying there? You're teaching, you're writing, the gospels you're going to write, the letters you're going to write. Where is that going to come from? Holy Spirit. 
it's going to come from the Holy Spirit. This book that we have, according to Jesus himself, not just Paul, but according to Jesus himself, comes from where? The Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which means this book is the work of God. It is God's Word. This is what Jesus tells his disciples. You'll see this sometime because this is the time when, when people run stupid shows about Jesus, find out the shocking truth about who Jesus really was, and it's all just, just ridiculous stuff. And one of the things they'll say is you'll see these scholars come up and say, <coughs> the disciples could not have written this. It was written 50 years after Jesus, or what, which is not true. Uh, most of the Gospels were written in the 40s and 50s and early 60s, about within 20, 30 years of Jesus' life. But even then, they say, well, and their, their memory was bad and all that other kind of stuff. What does Jesus say? Who will teach them what to write? The Holy Spirit. God himself will tell you what to write. So the Bible itself is a product of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 13. But when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. What he hears means from the Father and the Son, because the Father, Son, and Spirit are always in agreement. All truth. You know what all truth means? All truth. All that which is really true. I understand the Bible is a bad place to go learn math. I get that. I get, I, I, I praise God for our, for our understanding of science and, 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 and mathematics and all the, the things that we've made. But at the end of the day, if you're lucky enough to live to a ripe old age and you're in a hospice bed, this is the only truth you really want. This. This. 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. This is something you should have like, circled, underlined, marked, whatever. Paul speaking to Corinthians says this, we do, ha- we do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would have not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the thing God has prepared for those who love him. In other words, Paul is saying, are you kidding me? You couldn't make this up. If it didn't come from God, you could not make this up. These are things God has revealed to us by what? His Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. In other words, you can't work your way to God. You can't figure God out on your own. The only way to know God is to know through the Holy Spirit so that we may understand what God has freely 
give us. We have not received it, not the spirit of this world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. You, know what he's, you get what he's saying there, right? You don't understand the gospel unless you have the Holy Spirit. You can't. And this is what we speak. Not in words taught to us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. Explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. Do you see that Paul is repeating himself? Do you remember when I tell you, when the Bible repeats itself, take notice. This person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the what? Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. How can Paul say that? That that we could have the mind of Christ. How could he say that? Because of the Holy Spirit. That's why. I I am all for Preachers and teachers being well-educated. I will go ahead. You can call me a nerd. You can say I'm being snobby. You can say whatever you want, and probably when I'm not around, do. But I, my bias is that nobody should preach or teach the Scriptures until they learn them and learn them well. I believe that preachers and teachers should know Hebrew, they should know Greek, they should even know a little Aramaic, they should know theology, they should know philosophy, they should know actually how to speak in public, they should know something about education and missions and evangelism, they should know church history, they should know all of that, and I don't don't care. I don't think anybody has any business preaching or teaching unless they do, but they can have all that, and if they don't have the Holy Spirit, their ministry will be a failure. You have to have all of that. It's not one or the other. It's not one or the other. It's both. It's both. And what you need to understand, for those of you who don't have the time or inclination to go learn Greek and Hebrew and all other kind of stuff, and all you get is listening to me or dad, God help you, or whatever, you get that, and that's all you get, you need to understand this. When you speak to people about what you believe, when you defend the hope that you have within you, as 1 Peter 3.15 says you should, when you do that, and the person just looks at you like you are crazy, or they look at you and just like, whatever, good for you, glad it works for you, hope you're happy, not for me. And you can get disheartened And you can walk away thinking, ah, I should have said this. Ah, I should have said that. And maybe you should have, but you know what? If that person doesn't have the Holy Spirit, it doesn't make any difference. If the Spirit 
is not there, it's not going to happen. John Wesley and John Calvin both agreed on one big thing, and that is this. That unless that person is invaded by God's Spirit, either through the preaching of the gospel, which is the way John Wesley would put it, or because of predestination, the way John Calvin would put it, unless that happens, that person will not pay it any mind. And if the person pay, doesn't pay it any mind at that time, you walk away. And understand, it's not you. It's the Holy Spirit. And I've seen this work in the goofiest ways. You know, since I started to do this full-time, I spend a lot of time working on these sermons, working through the Greek or Hebrew outline all kind of stuff, and you know, and, and even when I was traveling full time, I would be on planes. So you know, I'd be preaching on Sunday night, and so I'd be on a plane for four and a half hours, and, and I'm sitting there, and I've got my Logos Bible software, and I'm going through it, and I'm, and I'm putting it all together. And I get up there, and I remember one night I get up, and I'm preaching, and I'm preaching through Romans, and, and every preacher just can't wait to get to Romans, you know, because it's we really geek out about that. And we get up there, and I'm preaching through Romans, and I'm preaching about sin, and I'm preaching about salvation, and salvation only comes through Jesus Christ, and I'm presenting the gospel, and I'm doing it, and then I get down, and I walk off. And somebody comes up to me, and, 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 they're, and they're just crying. And they, and they walk up to me, and they hug me. And I'm like, oh, man. And the, the, the music's playing, because we did things back then when I was preaching there. We did things a little different. We would do the preaching, and then we'd do the worship. And, and, and so, they, you know, they're, they're playing this song, and this person's just crying. And they came up and hugged me. And so I, I take them off to the side, and I go, I go, okay, what's going on? I said, you know, I, I want to be saved. I said, all right, let's pray. And we prayed together. I'm like, yes, yes, yes. I said, okay, what, you know, what was it? What was it that hit you? They said, they started playing that song. I'm like, the song? Are you kidding me? I didn't say it out loud. I was smiling and nodding, but I'm thinking, are you kidding me? Working four hours a day on this sermon, I get up there and preach my guts out for 40 minutes. And a few chords of that song is what brought you to God? That's how spirit works, man. That's just how it works. And you just have to make friends with it. I've, I've seen people come to Christ. I, I was preaching in upstate New York. I'll go to heaven for that if nothing else. I was preaching in upstate New York. And this family had started coming to church. Um, husband, wife, two kids, great people. But they knew nothing, nothing. I had to explain to them Old and New Testaments. I had to explain. They got their first Bible. They opened it and go, what are these numbers? They didn't know who Moses was. They didn't know who Noah was. Nothing. They knew nothing. And I walk them through all of this. And finally, I just get curious. I was like, so, you know, you weren't Christians. You weren't raised in, in the church. You knew, you knew nothing about the faith. What made you walk in to the church on a Sunday morning? And, and what, what was that about? She goes, my cat died. I said, your, your cat died? And I was lay my cards on the table. That'd make me praise God. That wouldn't make me run for salvation. I mean, yeah, I'm already in God's favor. The cat died. Um, 
not a cat person, folks. Um, but I'm like, what? she goes, I just, I just was so sad. I was just looking for something, anything. And I baptized this family. And they walked through the front doors because the cat died. The Holy Spirit. This is why, you know, even Jesus says, look, the Spirit goes where it wills. You can't control this. One of the things that makes me really angry is when, when I'll have this, like I used to have this uh, argument with worship leaders all the, the time. Our worship leaders are fine, but I've had those in the past where I've had this, you know, where it's like, okay, here's the deal. You have this much time for worship, and then they go like five, ten minutes over, and like, guys, you got to rein it in a little bit. You know, a minute or two is fine, but you can't go on forever. And they, they, well, we just, we felt the Spirit. You can't hinder the Spirit. You're hindering the Spirit. You can't hinder the Holy Spirit. It's God. No human being can hinder the Spirit. You can't do that. God will do as He wills. You can try. Good luck. You just get knocked over. You can't control the Spirit. You can't manipulate the Spirit. It's all about the Holy Spirit. So, here's where this, where the rubber meets the proverbial road. (coughs) All of you probably have that one friend or that one family member that just absolutely refuses to accept Jesus Christ. Or they say they do, And the way they live, you're sitting there going, yeah, not buying it. What do you pray for? You pray for more wisdom for yourself? Okay. Pray that they have the right argument or just the the right logic? Okay. All that's important. But what do they really need? Oh, Holy Spirit. And you can't manipulate the Spirit, but you can ask the Spirit. You can beg the Spirit. And sometimes the Spirit will condescend in His wisdom to do that. I know of a kid who ran away from home when he was 15, was an avowed atheist for 10 years, and that there was a blonde-headed woman in Portsmouth, Ohio, praying every day the Holy Spirit to work, and he did, because I'm standing here preaching the gospel and no longer an atheist. Ain't anything I did. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. Pray for more of it for yourself. Pray and beg that it works on those you know that you want to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we know, as your Apostle Paul writes, that 
what we know here about you, that our salvation is foolishness to the world, that we couldn't make this up, and we know it only because your spirit resides within us. We mourn for our little town that's been so hit with drugs and unemployment and crime and, and everything, and, and certainly what we do and the people we elect and all that kind of stuff can make a difference, but at the end of the day, what we need here in Portsmouth, Ohio, is your Holy Spirit to move and move powerfully. Even your people, your teachers, did not recognize your Messiah because they did not have the blessing of your Holy Spirit. May your Spirit move and give us what your Son called eyes to see and ears to hear that only comes from the blessing of your Spirit. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. God bless you. God go with you. Have a safe new year. See you later. Christ Community Church, located at 25th and Thomas Avenue in Portsmouth, Ohio. Christ Community meets on Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 10.30 a.m. For more information, visit www.christcommunity.net or check out our Facebook page.